So since September, as I think we've been reminding you every week, uh, we've been looking through uh, Romans and making our way through this letter. And we've been taught the reality of sin. And we've also been taught the freedom that is in Jesus Christ and the wonderful grace that he gives. Romans 7 and verse 6 reminded us that, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. In the second part of the passage in Romans 7 that was looked at last week, Paul affirms the holiness of the law and that the commandment is holy and righteous and good. However, because of the law, sin grew in strength because of the sinful human nature. Too much trust was put in the law, in the law for salvation. So, because salvation, it was a salvation of works, which was and is no salvation at all. That's where we're at. And this evening we'll come, as I've already said, to what is for me, or has been, the hardest uh, passage of scripture that I've ever had to preach on. I don't know what you thought whenever we read it together, besides being a, a tongue twister, uh, what it's really meaning. Uh, we'll come to think of the basic uh, meaning of it in a moment. But let's seek God and let's ask him to give us wisdom and to give us clarity of thought as we come together to see how we should handle this portion of his word. So let's pray. Father, no one but you can satisfy the longing in our hearts. Only you can fill the deepest longing. Only you can breathe in us new life. Only you can fill our hearts with laughter, and only you can answer our heart's cry. So as we come desiring to be filled, Father God, fill us. Teach us afresh this evening, so that we can know your example, the example that we are to follow, so that we can know a stronger relationship with you and grow in maturity in our faith. Speak to us. Uh, help us to understand what you're saying. In Jesus' name. Amen. It will be helpful for you to have Romans 7 open on page 1134, if you haven't got it in front of you already. And at its most basic level, uh, perhaps you were sitting there going, David, what are you talking about? How is this difficult? Because, yes, at its most basic level, this passage is about sin. But it raises questions about whose sin and exactly in what time period the sin is. Is it sin before conversion or sin in the life of a believer? And we will come to understand the answers to these questions. But we start first at verse 13. And this verse picks up where Christoph left off last week. Let me read it for you again. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Once again, Paul is making very clear his view of the law. 
The law was how he lived his life before his conversion. It was the thing that he trusted to guide him in everything that he did, in his daily living, and also in his way of salvation. It taught him how he could approach God, and it revealed to him something of who God was. In the law, Paul had hoped uh, that it would be something that would draw him close to God in every aspect of his life. And Paul affirms that and recognizes that the law is good. And he will affirm this again in our passage this evening in verses 14 and 22. But in verse 13, Paul is making it clear that the law isn't sin. For everything that Paul has said about how uh, we can fall into sin and that, as he's already said, the law was a marker and a pointer to sin, the law in itself is not sin. For Paul, the problem is that the law cannot save us because we cannot keep it. And we cannot keep it because of the indwelling sin that is within us. He states that the law was given us something good, something from God. But it has never been God's way of salvation. And that's been the clear message through everything that we've been looking at in our morning services and in going through Romans as well. The law only reveals to us sin. And as the passage says, in order that sin might be recognized as sin. What the law has done is pointed to a spade and called it a spade. And in many ways, it's like going to the dentist. I've had a few close encounters with the dentist over the past number of weeks. And in many ways, it's like plaque on our teeth. We can only see a certain amount of plaque on our teeth. If we undertake a close inspection of what our teeth are like, we can look at some teeth and say, yes, they have bits of plaque on, and we look at others and go, well, I'm not so sure. It looks kind of white, so it may be fine. I don't know if you remember as a child, I certainly do, whenever a dentist would come into school and give you a little blue tablet And you hoped that you were the kid who got the blue tablet. There never seemed to be enough of those tablets to go around for everyone. And you got to munch on it, and within a few minutes, it would display in your mouth where the plaque was. And what you realized was that there was more plaque in your mouth than you'd first appreciated, even after a good inspection. But the thing was, the tablet doesn't do anything for the plaque. It just shows it. It doesn't take it away. It doesn't do anything but show to you where it is. It takes something else to get rid of that thing that will decay and damage our teeth. And so it is with the law. It highlights where sin is. The law cannot offer us salvation. That comes through Jesus Christ. And Paul makes it clear that his way of following the law only led to death. It didn't offer what he thought it did, even though the law was good. So the law revealed to him the fact that sin is utterly sinful. And Paul will continue with this, but I'm going to need to take a moment to help us think through the rest of this passage from verse 14 onwards. Because we need to understand the context in which Paul is writing. It is believed that Paul puts his quill to parchment uh, 20 years or so after Pentecost. Pentecost was that moment when the spirit or the comforter that Jesus had promised fell on his followers. 
And up to this point, there had not been a full understanding of what Jesus was all about. The the revelation of the Spirit made it clear as to everything that the disciples had witnessed. So for the disciples and other followers of Jesus, they were, if you like, Old Testament Christians. They were following Jesus and believing him to be the Son of God. But what they were doing is living the way they'd always known, the religious way. They weren't fully liberated in Christ until the Spirit came to give them that insight and the fulfillment of everything that God had promised in salvation. So when the Spirit came to the disciples, they they understood what Jesus had been teaching and what he had been saying about what it meant for them to live lives that followed him. And Acts 2 is the passage we read earlier that gives us the account. And in verse 33, Peter acknowledges that it is by God sending the promise of the Holy Spirit that people can now see and hear for themselves the truth about Jesus Christ. And this was great for the disciples. And this was great for other believers who were there, who now fully understood what everything of Jesus was all about. But there were those who didn't fully understand. There were Old Testament Christians still around in Paul's time. They were following Jesus and understanding who he was, but they were living the religious way they always had, the life of the synagogue, the life of the temple. So Paul sets about to try and help these believers, and he does so by using the first person to teach about the goodness of the law, and its inability to save. So for us today, we must understand that Paul is not only sharing his own personal situation and experience, but also drawing on the similarities uh, with the people of Israel. So whenever he says, I, it's not just to himself, but it's a capital I, as in Israel, because he was trying to highlight to these people uh, the situation that they were in, the dangerous situation that they were in. And so we'll take the rest uh, of the verses 14 to 25 and look at them in two parts. And so first we'll go to 14 to 20. And in these verses, Paul repeats himself, uh, most likely for the purpose of emphasis. So verses 14 to 17 are reflected in verses 18 to 20. And they will, if we consider this as as one batch, it'll help us to, uh, to understand it a little bit clearer. So we'll Take the themes that Paul is bringing out in these verses. And the first thing that Paul does deal with is the innate sinfulness. It's a question of self-knowledge. The sin that is within us. A question about do we understand that it's there? Do we know that it is there? What do we think about this sin that is within us. Paul brings out that the sin that is so natural to us is in the flesh, our sinful nature. That thing that came through the fall of Adam is within us. Brian Chappell, a biblical teacher and author from America, refers to this as the sinful condition of the fall or the SCF. Because of the fall, within us there is sin within our flesh. And we could read this as a contradiction because Paul states that he is sold as a slave to sin. For us as Christians, we know that we are no longer slaves to sin. In fact, we are free in Jesus Christ, uh, the freedom that he gives and that he offers. 
But when we understand that Paul is seeking to address those believing in Christ, yet living under the law, we can see how this is not a contradiction, but a genuine statement of the condition of this type of person. Even though uh, they think salvation is for them and is in them, they're still getting it through the law. So they're still affected by the sinful condition and sold as a slave to that sin because they are not free in Christ. Paul is concerned with the sinful nature that is at work. So he recognizes the bias that is in our lives. So I want to ask you the first of our questions this evening. What is the sin in our lives that we are biased to? What is the thing, what is the hardest temptation we face that we so easily give into? Where is our natural bias when it comes to sin? Whatever it is, can I urge you, as I urge myself, to bring it to God? As his people, we need to be free. We need to be free from this bias that so easily takes us and distracts us from our walk with God. Recently here we have uh, had uh, Rico Tice. I'm very conscious that I'm getting his name right because we've been joking in the office about calling him Tico Rice. Uh, But no, Rico Tice. The name may be familiar to you uh, as the the guy, the minister from All Souls Langham Place in London who came up with the Christianity Explored course that we have used here. And he came as part of Cornhill, uh, the, uh, the teaching program that meets here in our buildings. And uh, Rico came uh, to do a day on evangelism about what it means to do evangelism today. Rico didn't go into techniques about do this and do this and do this. Rico started with the sinful condition of the fall. Rico started with his own life. And he shared with us the struggles and the sin that so easily traps and ensnares him. And, well, for me anyway, but I think for us all in the room, we were kind of shocked at his openness, but also his conviction that we would learn from his mistakes. And so I share that with you tonight. For him, if we want to do anything for God, Rico Tice was saying we need to sort out the sin that is within our lives, the temptation What comes our way that we so easily want to give into, but yet know that we shouldn't? What is the bias that we have to a particular temptation or sin? Because whatever it is, if we want to be serious about doing work for God, evangelism, pastoral care, uh, whatever it is, we need to be right with God. And in saying we need to be right with God, we need to deal with sin. Face up to it as the reality that is in our lives. So that's the first thing that Paul takes us to. Our sinful nature and how we need to deal with it. The second thing Paul addresses in these verses is the resulting conflict of the sinful condition. Verses 15 and 18b to 19 show the tension that Paul sees. The tension is the desire of wanting to do what is right yet so easily giving in 
to what is sinful. Does it sound familiar? I so eagerly want to do what God would have for me, but yet, oh, it is so easy to fall into the ways of the temptation of the evil one. I think we all recognize that conflict and that tension that we have, wanting to do what is right, but yet so easily giving in to the ways of the evil one. We, th- we know what we ought to do, but yet sin lures us into going its way. So what can we do about it? The second of our questions. What can we do with this tension that's in our lives as we profess Jesus Christ and desire to follow him. It seems to me that with Christian maturity comes a heightened strength to say no to these temptations. And I say heightened because I realize that even mature disciples of Jesus still struggle with this tension. From my experience, what has helped me is to bring it to God in prayer. It sounds so simple. But of course, when we bring something to God in prayer, we must come with the faith to know that God will hear and answer our prayer. It's simple but effective. And the request is simple and effective. I even prayed it earlier in our prayers. For me, what helps me each day is asking that God would save me from sinning. Not just save me from sin, but actually the act of falling into sin sinning. In other words, we acknowledge, whenever we say something like that, we acknowledge that we want to live for him and do what is pleasing in his sight. So we ask for his help. And as we recognize our need uh, to this help each day, the help that only can come from God, we are more conscious of our responses to temptation. And of course, it is with God's help. In my life, as I endeavor to to go on this path the struggles still come the temptation is still great and even though i've prayed such a prayer in the morning i still fall into sin i'm not offering you a quick fix or a a one answer uh, to all questions but i know for me what has helped me each day is to be conscious that i will fall into sin to acknowledge that it will be there and to ask god to help me through it by asking him to save me from sinning. So Paul, he shows us the reality of sin and our sinful nature. He uh, presents to us this tension and struggle that we have in our lives. And thirdly, the third thing that Paul shares with his readers is the fact that the indwelling sin is responsible for the failures and defeats of the person under the law. It is the counterfeit I, as John Stott calls it or describes it, the counterfeit I, the real, the real me is the one who hopes to follow Jesus, but the counterfeit me is the one who has the indwelling sin, who won't give up uh, the wonders that we find or we think we find in the sin. The law is neither responsible for our sinning nor capable of saving us. It has been fatally weakened by the natural sinful bias of mankind. So therefore, my counterfeit I or counterfeit me allows, is allowed to fall in to this continual spiral of sin. Your counterfeit. How are you dealing with the counterfeit you? 
the one that you really don't want to surface and to live, but yet is still there and active because of the influence of sin. So, it is our third question. How will I be saved? As we think of the real me and the counterfeit me, how will I be saved? Because here we have opposite ends of the spectrum. If the counterfeit I is indwelling sin that tells me I can rely on laws to get my salvation, then I am a fool if I fully understood what Paul has said to me. But if I recognize my natural sinful condition and understand that the law contributes nothing and it is the one who came to fulfill the law who is my salvation, that is Jesus Christ, then I am truly saved. So I ask again, how will I be saved? Are you depending on the counterfeit you who obeys the laws and thinks that is their salvation, much like these Old Testament Christians? Or are you relying on Jesus Christ, the one who came to fulfill the law so that we will be saved, truly saved? So that's Paul's dealing in the first part of this passage. And he moves into the second part in verses 21 to 25. And he summarizes the, situations, or the situation in terms of their double reality. Uh, reality sorry. It is noted that this is not the complete story, as Paul has yet to include the Holy Spirit in it. It's the one thing that's been missing so far. He's mentioned it here and there, but there's been no full grasp of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. And Paul depicts the double reality four times in four different ways. They are the two egos, the two laws, the two cries, and the two slaveries. And I have John Stott to thank for his insight in this and providing uh, these uh, realities. So the first is the two egos. In verse 21, Paul sees the evil and the good, that they are both present simultaneously, for they are both part of a fallen yet regenerate personality. Again, do we see it? Do we see it in ourselves that we, we want to do what is right with the character that God has given us to love him and to trust him? We want to do good, but yet so often we find ourselves doing evil. The two egos that are within us, simultaneously there. Paul highlights this for us, and he goes on to highlight there are two laws the two laws are the law of my mind or the inner law that is within me and the law of sin. The law of the mind delights in God's law, just as the psalmist said it should. We delight in the law of God because when we believe it and follow it, we will be like a tree planted by streams of water. We will flourish and present fruit in season. We will not wither nor decay. That is what he who is like, who is planted by the stream, who is trusting in the law, following the law. And of course, we know that fulfilled in Jesus today. So the law of, our, of the mind delights in God's law, whereas the law of sin operates in the members of the body and takes captive. Here Paul is again presenting the person who is still under the law. The missing piece is what we've said already. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the one who convicts and who uh, nurses our heart into a realization that there's something greater than what we see in life around us. The Holy Spirit who challenges us when we're about to step off that precipice and fall into sin. 
the Holy Spirit, the one who comforts when we need the comfort. There are two egos and there are two laws. The law, the law that is inner to us, the law of God or the law of sin. And thirdly, there are two cries, cries from the heart. And in verse 24, the cry is, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? The second is in verse 25, the first part of it where Paul writes, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And notice the punctuation. The first is a cry of longing which ends with a question mark. The second is a cry of confidence and thanksgiving with an exclamation mark. Both can come from a regenerate believer who cries over the corrupt nature through sin and longs for their final deliverance at the resurrection. Again, can we see it in ourselves as we understand how we keep falling into sin and we say, what a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death, but yet exclaim, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can cry these two phrases, even though we are regenerate in Jesus Christ. We can cry them because it is our heartfelt anguish. And rightly so, because the one who doesn't agonize over the sin uh, that they keep falling into is the one who doesn't recognize their need of salvation. But when we recognize our need of salvation and how the sin hurts us and our relationship with God, we will also cry thanks be to God because it is all through Jesus Christ how we are restored and how we are brought back into his presence again. Fourthly and finally, there are two slaveries. Paul sees these as a slave to God's law and a slave to the law of sin. And the conflict here is between a renewed mind and an unrenewed flesh where sin dwells. A slave to God's law and a slave to the law of sin. Where are we? Where are we whenever we come to think of these two laws? Are we following God's law? The way that he has uh, taught us to live, as we have been thinking, as we have been looking at the Ten Commandments, if we think that God is great and God is awesome, well then do we think his way of life will be great and awesome also? Because what we're saying when we say following God's law, we're not saying what we've been going against over these past number of weeks. The law will only reveal to us where our sin is. It won't save us. But we will delight in following God's law because it is his way. Or are we following the law of sin? The law that seems to be our society, where anything goes. I can do what I want to do as long as you don't cry to me, I'll not cry to you and you can do what you want to do. Where are we falling when it comes to these two laws? Are we falling down and coming down and following the law that God has for us for that perfect life? Or are we following on the law of sin, the one that will continue to trap us and snare us for the delight only of the evil one? So what can we learn from all of this? In everything that we have looked at tonight, what can we learn? And I want to show you two things that I think we can learn from. 
The first is the challenge of how we view our salvation. Are we using the law to live like Old Testament Christians? Are we believing in Christ, but consider the law to be our guide when it comes to living for him and serving him, rather than trusting in his way of salvation? So to continue on this path of salvation, we think that it will take us the law to earn the brownie points and to win favor with God. Living like an Old Testament Christian, if we are in the Spirit, and if the Spirit has done uh, the work in our lives, well, then that won't be our way. We will be understanding that Jesus saves us daily and saves us from sinning when we ask him to so that we won't be Old Testament Christians but will be fully his disciples living in this new era that he has ushered in so that we are no longer under the law but it has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So, how do we view our salvation? Secondly, how do we deal with this tension of desiring to do what is right, but yet we fail? How do we live each day in this tension? And uh, Eugene Peterson offers us a bit of help in this. Uh, And he paraphrases verses 24 and 25 as, I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influences of sin to do something totally different. So we survive this tension each day by relying on Jesus Christ, who is the one who can do everything for us who is the one who has done everything for us. So as you face the future, the future in the next five minutes, the the future for however long the rest of your life will be, and no matter what temptations come your way, no matter in what ways the evil one will try to trap you, to trick you, and to snare you to go off that path, that we are on with Jesus. Trust in our Lord and Savior. Trust in Jesus Christ to give you the strength and ability to stand firm in his love so that we can be faithful to his name. The cliche is he's only a prayer away. But yet, how true that is. How true it is that we can come to him to ask for that help to ask for that guidance, to ask for his wisdom within us so that we can do what is right. We can be uh, honoring in the name that we have on us, the name of Christ, that we can live for God, that we won't have this tension so strong within us, but we'll be able to resist what the evil one will have for us. And we can be ushered into that life everlasting that has been promised to us and we will and will be fulfilled in everything that Jesus will bring let's pray together
But Father, your word teaches us so much. And we affirm tonight the truth of your word. And at times, most times, whenever we read your word and we try to understand it, and when we get a grasp of what it's saying, it is like looking in a mirror. And tonight Paul has once again shown us what our reflection is like. He has done it in the way that he did it best. He challenges us right to our very core. And he challenges us, Father, in the way that you want us to be challenged. So help us. Help us with the tension that we face each day. Help us when we want to do what is good, yet so easily fall into the way that is wrong. Help us to live for you. Help us to be confident in our salvation. Help us to know that it is salvation in Christ alone. May we get the reality that nothing that we do will ever earn us our salvation nor will it ever uh, take it away or do anything to affect it. Your grace has ensured that salvation comes through Jesus. Help us to live the life that you have presented to us. It is a good life. We thank you for it and ask that you will help us each day to be your people in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.